This is the Unnamed Financial Podcast, a crash course in financial literacy. If you feel left out of the markets, join me, Matt Gregory, and stock market expert Peter Raschuti from Tulane University as we navigate the basics of Wall Street. And they certainly the company is worth millions and millions of dollars, but the people that run it and own it, um, particularly the person that started it, has no money at all. They've pumped all the money back into the company, and there's you know, you take them out for lunch and they make sure that you pay because they don't have any money. They don't have any cash. And so when they do an IPO, it allows them to cash in some of their shares. Every time there is an IPO, you'll always see founders uh, selling off portion of their holdings. On this week's episode, what are offerings? You know, like SPACs and IPOs. We'll break them down. And we'll get right into it. Joining us once again, Peter Raschuti down in New Orleans, where it's probably a lot warmer and a lot nicer down there than it is way up here in the mid-Atlantic. Well, it's supposed to be Jazz Fest, and uh, that's the time of year for us. But this is the second year in a row it's been canceled. So, uh, And it would have been nice weather for Jazz Fest. So we're all kind of a little bit bummed. Are they doing a virtual Jazz Fest? A lot of virtual festivals going on. Yeah, I know. Smattering things. The big radio station is WWOZ, and you can pick it up online. And they're they're playing just all the best from all the last forty jazz fests. So that's as uh, as good as we can get. I have a uh, I teach an investment class, and we have a had a big conference last week, and we had a wine and cheese party for the presenting executives uh, on Thursday night. And we um, it was a lot of fun. It was virtual, but then I brought Dave Malone, my brother-in-law, the lead singer of the Radiators, and. Uh, and he played a couple of songs. So that was our festing in place. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah. So. That's phenomenal. So, you know, I hate to break the joyous mood of Jazz Festival of memories of years past, but I wanted to know this week, and some other people asked me, <laughs> uh, in the world of, you know, stocks, you have IPOs, initial public offerings, SPACs, which I don't know what that means. And then you have what you said, like a secondary offering. So the question of this week is, what are offerings? Well, you know, they're, uh, they're new shares. In fact, um, you know, I think we could back up even from that, Matt, and say, you know, um, uh, where do stocks come from? And I, I think it is when two investors love each other very much. They, uh, they create. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that the stork, the stork brings um, babies because they, remember they used to have those ads for Vlasic pickles and they had the stork and he'd be dropping off babies. And I, I remember thinking, even when I was young, I thought, you know, there's no way that guy gets enough time off from the pickle factory to be delivering babies on the side. So, but you know, it was a tough time. You probably had to have two jobs: be the baby oh, deliverer yeah. and the plastic pickles man. It's very difficult. Oh, yeah, and you know, we're at a 35-year uh, low for having babies. So at least we're having new stocks. So that's good. <laughs> but getting back to where Matt was here, um, when you have a company, a private company, like when you drive down the street. Most of the companies you see are private companies. They're operating by themselves. They may have a couple of different owners, but outsiders can't own part of it. Uh, you may be able to convince them, you know, man, a man to sell them part of the company or whatever, but they're not public companies. Public companies, they come into the public market and they come in through an IPO, which means that a bunch of investment bankers and attorneys, who by the way are paid a fortune for this next step, um, get together and they, uh, and they work with that private company and make it, uh, get them to put their financials together uh, so it meets SEC requirements, the Security Exchange Commission. And so they get them ready to do an IPO. And what they do is they bring, um, they take that company and bring them all around the country to show them to institutional investors getting ready for the day it becomes public. 
So they've built up demand for this, this initial public offering. And, um, and then the deal comes through and it either comes on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. And then what the investment banker is supposed to do is they're supposed to come up with a price for where the uh, supply and demand will meet. And they're supposed to be able to do this. In other words, when a company goes public at 10, that stock should pretty much stay around 10 bucks for a while. Instead, you know, sometimes they, they go down after the IPO if there isn't enough excitement. And more likely the, the hot ones you're seeing are all situations where they've underestimated what the stock price will be and, uh, and it pops right up. So who, who decides and, uh, uh, the, the price? Uh, you, you were just talking about it there. You said it's a, they had their financials. Who ultimately makes the decision on the valuation of uh, what the IPO the, will be? That's the investment banker. And, you know, he, um, he or she needs, uh, has to look at things. Uh, if, if they are, they're being employed by the company going public. And what they tend to do is underprice the deal. And let's say you brought a, a million shares at 10. Well, and you're just a million shares out in the market and you thought it should be priced at 10. Well, that company's gonna get $10 million for doing that IPO. They're gonna give up either all or part of their ownership. And then the, a lot of these, the first trade is $20, $30 a share. Wow. Well, the guys that got the IPO, the investors made a tremendous amount of money in a matter of minutes. Uh, and they think, well, that's great. That was a great IPO, but it's not. It means that the, um, the issuing company left 20 or $30 million on the table. And that's, and so I think the real great thing is when the investment banker can find the, the price, the stock price, where it works. So um, that's what we see with, with IPOs is why do they do? Why does a company go from private to public? Well, the first thing is it gives them currency. Now they can swap those shares to buy other companies. Like uh, they want to buy another company. They might, might pay cash for it. They might pay stock for it. They might just give them shares of their own company, or it might be some combination of cash and stock, but they all of a sudden have a currency. The other thing is, and this is hard to believe, Matt, but you'll see a big company, um, a good sized company, private company, and, and they, certainly the company is worth millions and millions of dollars, but the people that run it and own it, um, particularly the person that started it, has no money at all. They've pumped all their money back into the company, and there's, you know, you take them out for lunch and they make sure that you pay because they don't have any money. They don't have any cash. And so when they do an IPO, it allows them to cash in some of their shares. Every time there is an IPO, you'll always see founders uh, selling off portion of their holdings uh, in order to get cash. And so they do that. And the other thing is, um, is diversification. Those founders, when they're a private company, have all their money in this company, no money anywhere else, and they, they haven't done any diversification. If a financial planning company came to them, it's like, Oh, so you have no cash and you own this, this big factory somewhere. That's probably not a good financial plan for you. So when the company goes public, you have the right to sell them off. And now you can take that cash and buy municipal bonds or mutual funds or whatever. Now, now that sounds great. These are three positive things. You've got some currency to buy uh, other, other companies. You have the uh, situation where you can now diversify um, you know, you, you get a lot of positives, but there is a negative, and that's the negative is that now you have to answer to people like me, which is terrible. <laughs> and I'm one of the nicest people. And you get these analysts and portfolio managers constantly knocking on your door, going, uh, Billy, so what's going to happen tomorrow? You got any, what do learnings look like? Why didn't you do that? You're dumb. It, this is what you have to live with the whole rest of your life as a public company. Yeah. And, um, 
And so the big thing, the big thing, the big problem with being going public is that now you have to think like a short-term person and not a long-term person. And business is a long-term game. I remember I was on the board of a company and uh, we went out, we spent an entire weekend, uh, a nice place somewhere, but like 14 hour days for three days in a row, coming up with a five-year plan and turning it into a PowerPoint for Wall Street. And it was, pre it was pretty involved and I was incredibly proud of the work we'd done. Well, they have an analyst meeting like two days later, we show it and we think it's beautiful. And the first analyst says, so what are you gonna earn next quarter? It's like, well, you see, that's why we gave the PowerPoint. You know, They're not interested at all. They just wanna know where's that stock gonna go in the next couple of months. And so you're living, so you have to manage the company for analysts and portfolio managers now and very, very short-term horizons. Um, a couple of things about that, because I've, you know, I've actually just watching this WeWork documentary, which is about, you know, this uh, startup that was private and valued at like 20 billion, 40 billion and billions of dollars privately. And then they had to take it on the road uh, after it was very clear they didn't have quite the numbers that they thought. Um, and then, you know, I was thinking back to Famous Dave's. I was hearing something about that. Famous Dave's, of course, went public, did an IPO. And then you find that like when they go public, is it often the case that the CEO is removed? The founders usually taken away from positions of power? Depends who, who owns the stock. If you still have 50% uh, of the stock, well, nobody's going to do anything with you. You know, you're going to be in charge there. Um, but if you own less than that, that's probably not going to happen either because now the stock is spread out through so many investors and they would have to all get together. You'd have to do something pretty bad to have everybody get together and say, you know who's not all right is Frank, the guy that started this company. You know, he's got to go, you know, but it's, um, it's not that way. And one of the, we were visiting a company once, guy gave, it was sort of a sarcastic answer, but it was the best answer. I said, do you think you'll get bought out? And he said, Peter, we're a public company. Every day we're for sale. And oh. that is true. That is the absolute yeah. truth. And, uh, and so I, I think that's where it is. I'll give you another example. The other problem with being public is you have, you have to announce everything that ever happened. You are you, the truth of being a public company. We were talking to an energy company once and they had gone from being private. This guy was the CFO for many, many years. Now they were public. They got some money. They thought that was good, but I don't think they quite understood what being public was. And um, so they, they, um, they drill a well and there's an oil company down here. They drill a well and they drill, it's very expensive. I don't know, it's like a hundred million dollars they drill. And they drill all the way down to the center of the earth and they come out in China or something like that. Very, very expensive well. And all they found was like a quart of Dr. Pepper or something, it was a total loss. And, um, and so they were like, oh my God, this is just terrible. Well, all right, okay, let's move on. And the lawyer comes, their lawyer says, no, 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 you have to make a press release on that. It's like, no way. It's like, yeah, you're a public company. We, the investors need to know. And so uh, wow. then a year goes by and then they hit a, uh, they're not that dumb. So they hit a good well. And then they, the law, and they said, this is great. You know, we're going to buy up all the property around it. Cause we think we found something here. And the lawyer says, oh, not before you have a press release which means the price oh. of all that property is going to triple. So this is the, there's a downside to being public. There really is. Is it ever the case that you can think of off the top of your head of a large company that went public deciding, you know what, we're going to buy back our shares, we're going to go private? All the time. All the time. And I'll tell you from wow. being a director is that, and this is true about every company, you sit there 
you know, every company has a board of directors, which at least half of them have to not work for the company. That's the, that's kind of the good governance rule, but you're there for a couple of days and you're thinking, and you're going over all this stuff. And, um, and, and it's such a pain in the neck as a public company, almost every meeting would end with, you know what, we're going to take this baby private. That's the way it was. Because if we we're private, any company, every company, see all S&P 500, all 500 companies have the same conversation at the end of every meeting. Because if you didn't have to do all this stuff, you could run it as a long-term business. You could, you wouldn't have to answer to Wall Street. And, um, and that's, uh, and that's what, it, and you know, and then of course these companies write terrible things about you. You can't take personally. I remember we had a company, uh, a short seller that would write terrible reports on us, you know, just, and we were great, but they, they were shorting the stock. So they wanted the, just like uh, the first people in GameStop and they were shorting the stock. So they would write yeah. these terrible things. And I remember asking one of the guys on the board, I said, have you read the last report and, uh, by this person? And I said, uh, I haven't. And they said, oh yes, we have. And I said, how bad was it? And the guy says, well, in a real Southern accent, he goes, well, I read the report, Peter. And, uh, you know, after I read it, I just, I, I don't know how management finds a way home at night. <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> Got to keep your sense of humor. <laughs> it's just all this abuse. And you did it because you needed cash to, to feel the more comfortable, have some money, have some currency to buy other things. But after that, it's just all a pain in the neck. Uh, there is some opportunities yeah. though, Matt, that I think is kind of interesting is I've been waiting for this. And I think you and I talked about this when we very started this program is um, you take GameStop, which is totally an anomaly and crazy town and all that stuff. But one of the things I would say is when the stock soared like that, one of the things I'd point out is that it made no difference to the company whatsoever. They were just still selling, mm -hmm. you know, um, consoles and, you know, hoping next to the mall, you know, there was not any <laughs> big difference. Um, but I mentioned that the one thing that could happen were two things. One, the, the uh, management probably owned some of the stock and they've made a lot of money. But the second thing was, what if they did a secondary offering? Because you don't have to mm -hmm. just have an IPO. You can sell more shares um, whenever you want. Like when you buy... Let's say you went public and you sold 10 million shares to the public. You probably have a lot more shares still owned by the company. It's what they call treasury stock. And so if you really thought the shares were very richly priced, you could do an offering. And that's what GameStop's doing. I always thought that's what GameStop ought to do. Do a giant secondary offering with the stock at 400 or wherever it was, and then um, uh, either go home or, you know, buy Microsoft, whatever would be handy. You know, it's a... Uh, it's just crazy. It's like taking advantage of a, uh, a lunacy situation where investors are, are paying too much for your stock. Yeah. And you were saying, um, well, at the time it was at 400 a share, came back down. Now it's been hovering at like 170, 180, even though the company, as we know, is on the downward trajectory based on, you know, uh, retail. So do you think they waited? I, I until guarantee they saw you it was stabilized that they were, should start issuing stock? There were meetings about, you know, Bob, are you thinking what I'm thinking? You know, it's <laughs> and uh, so, but they did it now. It has stabilized. But when I say stabilized, the stock was at twenty bucks, and it's not worth any more today than it was then. You know, it's uh, they got a the guy from uh, I think it's Chewy's, the the pet food company no. that delivers on the board now, and obviously knows the internet. It's stuff like that. But 
I mean, it's still, you can buy that gaming equipment anywhere you want online, you know, for very little money. So, and uh, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, because I tried to, and I, you know, once again, we, we don't make a habit on this program of actually talking about what to invest in, but there was an IPO I wanted to hop in on. I saw it was coming up. I'd been reading about the company for 10 years. I wanted to buy. And when I went to Fidelity, it said, unfortunately, we're Isn't only accepting truth? offers of $500,000 worth or more. If there's any is that what happens with IPOs? You and I are not going to get any of it. Oh. The new thing is, by the way, if you and I have a decent mm. size account, but I mean retail accounts, I mean not, not big, they will, um, like I put an order in for a company, an IPO a couple of years ago. I wasn't mad. I thought it was really funny. I put an order in for a thousand shares and I got four, which was higher than zero, which is I thought I might get, but ah. you just had to laugh, you know? And, uh, but no, yes. those are saved for their big best clients. And, um, so the company that brought them public, of course, you're one step away. The mm. company that brought them public was an investment banker, say Goldman Sachs, and their best client is Fidelity. And then Fidelity was saying, you know, and you're my client, I guess we could come up with something, mm. you know, a copy of home game or something. So the IPO, if I'm not mistaken, is the only time you can independently actually buy stock from the company as opposed to buying it from all we're ever doing with stock is just we're just trading it back and forth. Absolutely. You are. In fact, all these kind of things where we talk about. You know, you're by by investing in the market, you're you're helping American business, and that the flag comes out and the Star Spangled Banner and all that. Um, it's ridiculous. The only people that funded the money is the people that bought on the IPO. That's the only one. Mm. It was the only transaction between you and the and the uh, yeah. and the company. After that, it's just a casino on the sideline, and um, it's just. So I mean, it's fine. It's a it's a nice mechanism, but but to say you're you're building America is really kind of nuts. And that's why, I mean, so many things we could drift to, Matt. That's what I love about our conversations is, you know, President Biden's talking about raising the capital gains tax. And, you know, so you're already starting to hear all these people say, and that's what makes America strong. And because it's ridiculous, you know, unless these people bought on the IPO, they just, they bought something on the second, they bought hundred yeah. shares from some dentist in Cleveland and then it went up and then they sell it and they owe taxes on it. It's not, <laughs> it just goes on and on it but so but i mean there's so much there's so much spin out there and they don't is, even they don't realize it spin. well i was going to say you know with the initial public offering but as we're learning is more of a um i guess you would say it's a restricted public offering really when you think about it um you have that you have the secondary offering which is a way to raise capital if your stock is i mean clearly overvalued um so what are SPACs? spac well Let's talk about them. The, um, and one thing I would like to say, though, is think about two things that are kind of good indicators. When a company issues an IPO, uh, new public to markets to the market, or a secondary offering, part of what they're saying is, I think this stock is fully priced. Hmm. I'm willing to give up stock at this stage for cash. Now, you might, might be something accentuating, like, I really do need cash right now. We need it to grow up. But I mean, you're giving up stock at this level. And you know the company better than anybody on the planet. And you're willing to give up the stock here. Secondary, because GameStop's kind of a funny situation. But in the secondary market, same thing, only more so. You think the um, stock is fully valued, maybe overvalued. And it's like, uh, you want to give me that much money? I'll, I have more shares where that came from. And uh, now what the other flip side of that is when a company does a buyback. And those are huge. I mean, people have been doing those last 10 years. Um, 
even you know, for 100 years, but over the last 10 years, it's been really big, um, where they're buying back their own stock. That's the opposite message. That's them saying, you know, with what I know, our stock is undervalued and I'm just going to buy it back. If the market doesn't, the market's giving it away this cheaply, I'm just going to buy it back. In theory, the, eventually investors will realize what we're really worth and then we'll do another offering on the mm -hmm. stock. So that's kind of, kind of that. But these SPACs are a, um, uh, there's special purpose acquisition companies and they've been around forever and ever and ever. But in the last 12 months or so, they've really exploded. And what they are is they're, they're little, they're shell companies or what they sometimes call blank check companies where they take money in from investors. They usually start at $10 a share. They take that money in and then they go out and try to make acquisitions with that money. And so um, the interesting thing is when you buy a SPAC, you don't know what's in there because actually nothing's in there when you buy it. In fact, you are, and I love this expression, you are betting on the jockey and not the horse. You're, oh. you're betting on the money manager, the guy that can find these acquisitions. You don't know what on earth is gonna get in there. And there's some funny things that happen, some weird rules. Like they, this SPAC, this, this investment person managing the SPAC only has two years to find something. Hmm. After two years, they have to give you the money back. This is very odd. And so uh, you'll get your money back plus a little bit of interest. And, uh, and this is very, very strange, you know, to do it this way. Now, one of the things about that to me, the, uh, what, the what light bulb goes off is they don't want to give anybody the money back. They really, they've got money to invest and all that. So I think it sort of forces them, if they can't find anything good, to buy some things that maybe aren't so good. You know, mm. I've got to, I'm, I work this hard get, gathering this money. I am not giving it back. So I'm going to find something. And hopefully it's, it's a great deal. But um, even if it isn't, it'll be an okay deal. And um, so that's what's going on. And um, so, and they're out looking for, so they're nothing. They really are. They're just, uh, that's why they call it a blank check um, situation. They've got your money and they're just going to start looking. And can the average like retail consumer invest in a SPAC? Absolutely. In fact, that's kind of what they're looking for. Uh, the SPACs mm. have really been marketed as a kind of investment that you could only get into if you were a very wealthy people. Like, like there's, um, there's venture, you can put money in venture capital or private equity and they work the same way. You put money in, this person you trust goes out and tries to find things. And, uh, and then you, they tell you if they ever found something. And uh, once again, if they can't, they'll send, them, send money back to you. But this is sort of enables the small guy to just go buy shares of this back. And if they do find something, you get a chance to buy uh, the new company with the acquisition in it. I mean, that's uh, oh. so, but it's, uh, it's very odd. You know, one of the things that scares me about this market, Matt, is, is the fact that people are coming up with so many new configurations to allow people in. And that's because people are so desperate to get invested. They're getting nothing in a money market fund and they're investing in things they have no idea how they work. And, um, you know, I'm not against new products. I think, you know, maybe something new can be developed, but not this many, you know, it's, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's a little frightening. It, it, it doesn't, you know, the fact that I have not heard of a SPAC before this year, I understand that I'm on the periphery of most of these things, but it does, it's a little alarming to realize there's something out there that no one has much of a clue about. And 
like you said, it's you're betting on the jockey. You're not betting yeah. on the horse. So you're saying, gosh, I hope this jockey steers me into a win. But how do you even know if he's a good jockey? Do you have much of a track record? These are not relatively old where you'd be looking at an investment banker at years and years of doing this. That's very disconcerting. He or she has probably come from a background of doing venture capital or private equity deals. Um, and so he has, he or she has a track record per se, but um, track records don't really hold up that well. I mean, you're still kind of like, you know, I saw a study once that said um, you should always invest. People think I should invest in mutual funds with the best track record. And, um, and one of the things they say in ads and there's mutual fund ads, and I just laugh, it says, um, um, oh, they will say, okay, this has been up 30% a year. And then underneath it says, uh, your results may differ, which is, which is exactly how life works. And so, you know, there's a, there's a theory out there that says you ought to buy the worst performing mutual funds because under the every dog has his day theory of finance. Yeah. So, um, so even if you had much of a track record here, uh, plus everybody's fighting for these same deals. Um, um, a lot of times these are companies, what they're buying a lot of times is companies that aren't ready for their own IPO. Mm. They either don't have enough backing or they, their products aren't quite developed. They're, you're buying companies that really aren't ready for the dance. And, and, and you're willing to stick with them. And I, I was wondering along those lines, um, you know, why wouldn't, why wouldn't that investment banker or acquisition person just stay with their original investment bank place, their cap venture capital firm? Why would they go make a SPAC? What's the incentive for them? They, um, they get enormous, they get like 20% of the deal. Oh, okay. So it's, um, I know the original answer was they're part of UNICEF, but that is not true. There's uh, a, <laughs> wow, what an, that's a very enlightening thing because I, I, there's all this, once again, you go to Bloomberg, you go to CNBC, Fox Business, whatever you're, your uh, market du jour for news is, and I, they'll talk about SPACs. I'll see two talking heads going back and forth. One saying these are bad for consumers. Consumers should be able to participate. The other one says, oh, they're perfect. They're a nice little entry-level thing. And I keep thinking to myself, couldn't you just spend like some time talking about what it is, how it yeah, works? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they, the good thing is whenever you get in a fight with somebody about that, I'm not very confrontational, but if somebody hates the stock I own, Rather than, you know, I'll tell you, you know, your, your mother wears army boots, which is where I would usually go, you know, um, uh, <laughs> it's something personally insulting. I, I, the key to that is just say, well, that's what makes a market. And then everybody's mm -hmm. home and everybody's fine. It's uh, so if you ever get, you know, cornered at a bar or something, I'm trying to think the things that could happen to Matt. And I'm trying to, as an older man, I'm trying to <laughs> save you. Uh, I, I run into this strange thing where um, people want to talk about investment stuff. And I always say right off the bat, I don't know what I'm talking about. I go to people who I think know what they're talking about. I take the pieces of advice I can comprehend, and I will regurgitate those pieces of advice I can comprehend back to you, sir. And then the guy will go, so why aren't you putting money in Bitcoin? I'm like, well, I don't even know. Yeah, absolutely. They, and of course, it ends up like telephone tag. You know, it's what was originally heard on TV is uh, uh, nothing. It, and you know, the thing is, even when you read like I get Barron's every Sunday. It's the Wall Street Journal's um, weekend edition. It's, I read it religiously. Um, but you know, you look into their interviewing money managers or on TV, you gotta remember the stocks they're promoting, they own already. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you're, you end up being so skeptical. Like, I think this is gonna do really well. And you know, and 
I'll just say in the bottom, uh, it's always something vague, like may own securities that have been mentioned in the, uh, but yeah. It, it, that, see, that's, and that's the part I find the most disconcerting about the whole offering world. I'm like, it's like they're saying, why don't you come to the dance? We'll let you in when we're ready to let you in. And whatever your experience at that dance might be uh, is really of your own creation. We had nothing to do with it. Right, because you, um, you, you picked me as your jockey and, you know, I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't promise and I don't. I don't see many jockeys repeatedly year after year winning the Triple Crown. I usually no, see no. one who's done one Triple Crown in his lifetime, maybe. It is, uh, but, uh, there, you know, the, but there are some stereotypes. All jockeys are short. That would be <laughs> one of them. That's one of my favorite lines I've heard down south is, uh, you know, you'd tell them, you'd tell that you were doing better at some at something than somebody else, but everybody was doing awful. And and people always go, uh, yeah, it's, but that's like being the tallest jockey. You know, it's not really, <laughs> it's not really, <laughs> sounds like a compliment, but uh, so yeah. the uh, I so, appreciate the uh, the horse racing analogies as we get closer oh, yeah, to the Kentucky good. Derby. Yeah. Now, what leg of the triple crown is where you are? Uh, that is the second. That's the Preakness. Is uh, oh yeah. It is, you know, it's this historic race that every year the state of Maryland seems to be fighting to try to keep the actual race in Baltimore at the Preakness. I think oh. they may lose it in a couple of years. It's you would think there would be. We we try to preserve houses built in the twenties, but we're not going to try to preserve a race in Baltimore because <laughs> Pimlico, the track, is so gross. I don't know, but oh. well, it Matt, is I got to tell you, we, and we're having a good time with jockeys. I got to tell you, it's my assistant at Tulane. She, um, she got an apartment right across from the fairgrounds of the second oldest racetrack in America here. And um, they get the apartment and um, she and her new husband, they got married and moved in. And they've been there for about two weeks and not even saying anything to the other one, but they both noticed that things seem a little short, like the sink is a little bit short and the, um, and the table's a little short. And, you know, and finally one says to the other and says, you know, I actually noticed that I didn't want to bring it up. And it was the, um, bunkhouse for jockeys so, so they're wonderful think of that next time you're picking out an apartment but uh no if yeah. you look at ipos you look at um secondaries you look at SPACs. um you know it's a, it's a way to raise money that's really what it mm -hmm. uh, what it is fantastic that's all i think we can do on uh, offerings for today I was going to ask you now, you know, I, I haven't had a whole lot of time. Last week had some things, so I thought we'd combine both weeks. Well, is there anything generally that you're seeing in the market over the last two weeks um, between the capital gains, between some of the infrastructure bills that the president's talked about? What have you seen the reaction or, or is there something else I'm missing altogether in the market that you're seeing? Well, you know, Matt, I think what might be a good subject is insider trading because mm -hmm. one of the things, and it'd be great because it's two separate subjects, right? There's the insider trading where before you know it you're in a federal penitentiary in connecticut going give me the ball give me the ball without any research <laughs> area and then we'll talk a little bit about that but but really we'll talk about what insiders are doing with their stock and why it's so important mm -hmm. as an indicator for people yeah i like that for next week great what is insider trading um is there anything you saw in the marketplace at all that was interesting to you yeah um uh what i began to see is that uh, first of all uh, everybody this week has, has got their eyes on the Fed, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, poor Jerome Powell has to word things. I, I don't know what he's, he's probably somewhere practicing right now, you know, trying to, it, it's, it's such pressure. Uh, but the, the thing the market likes is the fact that he is saying um, that he doesn't think this market's overheating. And it's funny because 
we are seeing inflation where it's mm -hmm. uh, when you look on the uh, you look at the releases from brokerage firms and all it says inflation is below two percent but if you go shopping or you fill up your car or do any normal things you see inflation <laughs> and and they're not miscalculating it's just that's not included like food and uh, food and fuel is not included uh, as a good example uh, um, hmm. you take things like co college tuition it's gone like when you went to school when i went to school it's it's like a zillion times what it was then so we see it uh we see it we feel it and yet we get <laughs> we get a thing in the paper telling us it's all your imagination i was gonna say i, I saw something that said inflation was you know up two percent i think you know like you were saying um, which is astronomical when I look at gas for $3 across the street, when I think like the price of oil per barrel isn't even that high. Um, yeah. So I'm confused, com comparably, I suppose. Is the so term. if you're a consumer, you're paying a lot more. And of course, that's what our last point is. That's what Jerome Powell is talking about. Does inflation get to a level where he has to start clamping down and raising interest rates? So we will see. Yeah, I think that's something to look forward to. And then I think next week, we tackle what is insider trading, both the felonious insider trading yeah. and the what are the insiders doing? I like that. <laughs> Very good. Peter, thank you so much for your time. And you at home, thank you for listening. <laughs>